Coming up on this episode, we're kicking off our sexy supernatural summer as we recap the season two finale of Dante's Cove. Welcome to episode 392 of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for avid readers and passionate fans of gay romance fiction. I'm Jeff, and here with me as always is my co-host and husband, Will. Welcome back, Rainbow Romance Reader. We are so glad that you could join us for another episode of the show. As always, this podcast is brought to you in part by our remarkable community on Patreon, and we'd like to quickly thank them for their support, including our newest member, Lauren. It's because of our patrons that we're able to bring you podcast episodes every single week with interviews from some of your favorite authors and reviews of some of the most amazing books our genre has to offer. On the Big Gay Fiction Podcast Patreon page, members have access to the Fast 15, an exclusive monthly bonus episode, and they also have the chance to ask questions to our upcoming guests. Patrons help fund the transcription of the episodes, making sure that this show is accessible to all readers and listeners. If you're in a position to help the podcast grow and would like more information, simply head on over to patreon.com slash biggayfictionpodcast. So before we get to our discussion of Dante's Cove and the summer phenomenon that has become Ken Porsche, I'd really like to recommend a podcast episode that aired back during Pride Month, specifically an episode of the Shelf Love podcast that dove into the history of queer romance. Now, I'm not sure if any of you remember an online questionnaire that was circulating in the days before the pandemic. I know 2020 feels like a thousand lifetimes ago, but... PhD student Lucy Hardgrave was behind that survey, and in this episode of Shelf Love, she gives us some insight and some of her findings about the responses that she received and have become part of her research as she's getting her doctorate in queer lit. The majority of the episode, though, focuses on what I think is the most succinct attempt to trace the beginnings of queer romance as a genre. Romance has always been a component of queer lit, but she's been asking the big questions like where did it start exactly and how did formative texts in the past lead us to the books that we love to read right now. She's the first person who's really dug in and done the research, looked at the history, and given what I think is the most clear and definitive timeline, essentially the evolution of the subgenre. Geeking out about gay books is my thing. It's like what I do. And if it's yours too, you should give the Shelf Love podcast episode, Queer Romance, A History with Lucy Hardgrave, a listen. You can search Shelf Love in your preferred podcast app, or you can use the direct link in our show notes. Absolutely. We'll have it there for you. Shall we see about maybe getting you an honorary doctorate in queer romance? I'm sure that the study curriculum would be amazing. (laughs) Surely, with everything I know, I at least would have a PhD by now. I would hope so, right? I I should open the doors to the Cape Fiction University. (laughs) And Lucy could be among our first instructors besides you. So let's talk about the show that has kind of taken the gay romance world by storm. But really, what is there to say about Ken Porsche? I could say all of the things, or I could just say go watch it, because I know you're going to love it. Probably half of you listening right now are nodding your heads in agreement, and the other half of you have no clue what the hell I'm talking about. So, for clarity's sake, let's talk a little bit more in-depth about this show. Ken Porsche is a Thai boys love mafia drama, and in the first episode, Ken, the new head of his family's crime family, he gets himself into a little bit of trouble, and it's Porsche who helps rescue him. He's enlisted to become Ken's bodyguard, setting off a string of perfect opportunities for them to fall in love. 
That is a perfectly succinct log line for it right there. Everybody has been talking about this show all summer. And for good reason. Not only is it deeply romantic, but it is emotional and funny. It's outrageous and dramatic. It's really hard to accurately describe because it's not just one thing. It is all the things. And all of those things are amazing. It even goes there with the dark mafia romance themes, which I wasn't sure it was going to do until it really goes there (laughs) in the last two episodes with two of the supporting characters. Those of you who've seen it know exactly what I'm talking about, and normally I might not be on board for that type of thing, but somehow this show, it makes it work. Over the course of the show, not only do we fall in love with Kin and Porsche, but the huge cast of secondary characters as well. They've got their own stories and romances that are all just as compelling. It's just really, really great. I was just blown away by this show. I mean, you're right. It is everything and the kitchen sink and then some more stuff too and the fact that they managed to tie it all together and really stick the landing with it there's a door open for a season two which it sounds like the show's gonna get if it stopped there though you didn't feel like you were necessarily at least i didn't feel like i was like oh they didn't wrap up this or they didn't wrap up that that they were able to take all those components and deliver a satisfying ending was just remarkable. I don't think an American TV writer could necessarily have made it stick the landing so well. And partially, too, because Americans, I don't think, write their dramas this way. It was really just incredible. And like you, as we got into some of those darker moments, I was like, hmm, not sure I can do this. But you know what? I did because of the way that it was all presented in the package that it was. I loved all of these characters. I love the phenomenon that it's become. They're doing this thing that we've read about called the world tour, where like the entire cast is coming together to greet fans and do stuff. And there's cute little plushies too. Oh my God. It's super interesting. I don't know a whole lot about Eastern pop culture, but in this particular case, I think it's super interesting how, I assume it's the production company behind the television show, have taken this phenomenon and are using the k-pop marketing machine to increase and take advantage of all the hype that's going on right now because the entire cast of the show is going on tour like a band i know and there's not an insignificant number of them (laughs) an insane amount of merchandise to go with all of this it's kind of it's bonkers and amazing it's pretty cool and it's interesting just my last thought here i kind of had this the other day how we've gone from late spring, early summer of the obsession over the super sweet Heartstopper. And now we've kind of flipped over now in July to something that meets all the genres. Because there's certainly sweet here, but then like you said, there's dark. And now we're really all into Ken Porsche. And there's almost like two ends of the spectrum of programming almost. It's been really nice to see such a diverse bit of queer culture really hit some of the zeitgeist. It's, oof, I love it so much. And please make a season two. It sounds like there's going to be one, but I would totally sign up for that. If you want to see what all the fuss is about and you want to check out Ken Porsche, you can find it on the IQ.com app. That is the letter I, letter Q. This is how we watch the show. And currently it is the exclusive way to stream the show in the U.S. Another thing that we watched recently, something that is completely different, but no less romantic, is the Korean movie Wish You, which is about a singer-songwriter and a producer-songwriter who find themselves tasked with living and working together on the singer's debut. 
which is an album that their management company hopes will turn the singer into the next K-pop superstar. Now, what's interesting is that for a movie that is technically set in the flashy, over-the-top world of Korean pop music, this movie is very chill. It is quiet, and it's sweet, and it's kind, and if you'd like to try something just a little bit different, you know, a little bit more low-key, and you want to watch cute boys being cute and falling in love, Wish You is the movie that you're going to want. Right now, it is currently streaming on Netflix. It's so swoony delightful. Because you're right, it's sweet, and it's kind, and it's romantic, and I need a copy of that single. I haven't gone online since we watched it just a few days ago to see if there was like a clean version of the title song without all the, like, because occasionally there's like other talking going over it and they don't finish it or something. The lyrics are lovely, but just the singer's voices, they're just, oh, they're so good. It was such a delightful summer movie. Now, of course, we'll have links to that podcast episode we mentioned, as well as these TV shows. But now, let's get into our discussion of Dante's Cove. It is solstice time, everybody. This is episode five of season two, appropriately titled Solstice. And if you'll remember the last time we ended on a somber note, Van's on-again, off-again girlfriend, Michelle, was so overwhelmed that she decided to end it all and decided to take a long walk into the ocean, never to return. At one point in this episode, Grace refers to it as taking a long walk off a short pier, yeah, it was, which it is, was cold. Great, is cold and super tacky. Well done, Grace. Anyway. One of many just wonderful Tracy Scoggins moments in this episode that we'll be talking about. I have a lot of feeling about Tracy in this episode. <laughs> yeah, we've got a lot to discuss. This is the finale of season two. And as we kick things off, everyone is sad about Michelle for like a hot minute. But apparently there's a storm brewing because Libra Solstice, Libra Solstice. It's the first time that there's been legit weather causing wind and thunder and lightning on the entire show, I think. So after a few tears, Kevin is working hard for the money and helping hang some twinkle lights at H2O with Kai and Marco when he sees that someone familiar has arrived in Dante's Cove. It's Derek and his himbo friend, Jay. <laughs> Now, if you recall a couple of episodes back, we had a very brief flashback concerning Kevin and this man from his past. Apparently, when Kevin and Derek were little baby gays, they liked playing doctor. (laughs) And Derek is now like the very last person Kevin wants to see. So before Derek can see him behind the bar at H2O, he sneaks off. In like one of the most hysterical scenes ever. (laughs) Creepy crawling along the floor. It's like, doop, doop, doop. So silly. (laughs) Van, meanwhile, is just now learning that Diana is, in fact, a treesome witch and Grace's sister. And she tells Van all about the details of the solstice ceremony, being able to stop time, yada, 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 Libra solstice, Libra solstice. (laughs) This is a helpful way of getting the audience up to speed if they can't remember what all the hubbub is about. Well, they do slow drip this over a few episodes, and this particular series ran once a month if I remember correctly. So if it wasn't in the previously on, you might need that little refresher, you know, cliff note version of what was about to happen with the solstice. Here's a little behind the scenes tidbit. In the audio commentary on the DVD, the director Sam Irvin mentions the odd fact that this scene between Van and Diana takes place in Diana's bedroom. They're both sitting on her bed, which might seem a little odd, but originally in the script, the scene preceding this actually had Van and Diana hooking up. Oh. They eventually decided not to have that be part of the episode. 
Essentially because mere minutes before, Van is all broken up about the death of her girlfriend. And now she's hopping into bed with Diana. It seemed a bit much and it didn't bit, make a yeah. ton of sense. So I just assumed that it was part of Van's cleaning service that she was in the bedroom <laughs> and they just decided to hang out and chat for a minute. Exactly. <laughs> the makeout scene between these two characters is part of the deleted scenes for this season. So if you're interested, be sure and check that out. Meanwhile, Grace, with Van by her side, is using Saint as an exploration of her past. Grace explains that the citizens of Dante's Cove occasionally use Saint to get stoned, but the trees and witches have been using it as part of their ceremony, apparently for generations. Grace refers to it by its real name, Starflower, (laughs) which I think is... It's an even more idiotic name than Saint, but we'll just go with it. This is my Tracy Scoggins moment number one in this episode. We've already alluded to number two. Tracy is so earnest and so believing of the gobbledygook that she is saying here about the Saint and the going into the past and more about the Libro Solstice. Her performance here is really so spot on as she's taking her treesome magic voodoo stuff so extremely seriously there's so much you could laugh at about this show but you get a performance like that somebody who just who knows the show that they're in but they're selling it so seriously i really liked that moment with everything that was going on around her she was about to take this little time trip into the past good job tracy yeah the thing grace wants to set right if she gains the libra power during the solstice is her complicated relationship with ambrosius and it's during this ceremony through Grace's POV, we don't really get a flashback to old-timey Dante's Cove. We're sort of looking at the possibilities of what might have happened if Grace had followed all of her mother's wishes. Grace really only needed bro so that she could sire an heir. And according to some tradition, after that was accomplished, she would have killed Ambrosius, which in this sort of flashback is what we see. But it seems to be all for nothing because someone poises Grace and she ends up losing the baby anyway. Seeing this vision obviously upsets Grace. Primarily, I think, because it seems that no matter what choice Grace makes, she's going to have a fucked up life no matter what. (laughs) That's always the case when you mess with the timeline. We've seen that enough in so many time travel shows that... Whatever's supposed to happen usually finds a way to happen somehow. Who do you suppose brought the poison flower? I had in my vision that it was probably Diana that did that. We never, we never find out. Well, okay. Let me, (laughs) let me explain. So after she kills Ambrosius with her magic sparkly fingers, Grace and her mother are at Ambrosius's graveside and someone saunters by in like full funereal getup with a heavy dark veil, and she gives Grace a rose. And in a, in a very fairy tale turn of events, Grace pricks her finger on the thorn of the rose, and through some expository dialogue, we learn that the rose was poisoned, therefore leading to the loss of Grace's baby. But you're right, we have no idea who the woman in the veil was. It could very possibly have been Diana, but we have no idea who. Yeah, that's just my personal guess. And while all this is going on, everyone is having a grand old time at the lair. Colin gives the orgy dude some condoms because he's a a responsible host. Marco stops by and says, you stop selling Saint at my club. And in scene. Yeah. That's basically it. (laughs) That's all we see of the lair for this episode. It's sort of, I don't know. It was strangely perfunctory. 
Well, and it really left something out, too, because at the end of the last episode, and it's even shown in the previously on sequence that Colin brought Adam into the orgy room, but we don't know what Adam's experience was in that room. Oh, I think we all know what his experience was. But how did it really go down? Because he's not into guys, in theory. It's just like it was a gap left there. I would have been better off if it hadn't been in the previously on to make me think I was going to get more closure on it in this episode. Speaking of closure, it is also revealed in the commentary on this episode that originally there were six episodes scripted for this season. But for budgetary considerations, they decided to cut it down to five. So this episode that we are watching now is a combination of those two episodes kind of smooshed together. Interesting. Given all the quick cuts in the last episode, I would have assumed that was a smooshed episode because this one at least was paced a little better than the last episode, in my opinion. Yeah, characters appearing and then dropping away are a result of the heavy editorial hand they needed to use for this particular episode. Mm. Because there's a lot of stuff that you have to shove in when you get a season finale. Yeah. So Derek and his bro Jay are staying at the Dante because of reasons, and they're there for a bachelor blowout. How big of a blowout are they going to have with just two guys? I don't know. Derek is supposedly the one getting married. That's so how I, I ugh. why would a straight guy bring one friend for his tropical bachelor getaway? Well, now we do know that they were the last flight in before the airport closed for the storm. Well, that sort of explains it. So maybe the rest of their bros couldn't get there. <laughs> Stranded bros, oh no. (laughs) (laughs) So with Derek and Jay hanging out at the Dante, Kevin puts on this dude bro attitude, which is super ridiculous, and Toby even says so. His straight act is not super convincing. It really is not. But before we really have a chance to discuss why Kevin feels the need for this pretense, everyone has to go inside because the storm is a coming. And you know what that means? That means the return of lightning indoors. Ah, just flashing through the windows, which were <laughs> which were boarded up because of the storm. But not all of them. <laughs> we're in the kitchen a lot, and there's not a single board to be seen on those windows. Oh, they didn't gosh. do a great job with the boarding of the windows. Bro visits Diana because Libra Solstice, Libra Solstice. And when he sees that she has so much junk from the historical society kind of laying around her house, he asks if she's seen an old China doll. Now, from previous old-timey Dante's Cove flashbacks, we know that Bro gave this china doll to Grace as a gift. Her mother wasn't happy about it, and she broke the doll. And the doll as a prop has been sort of like hanging out in the periphery in a few episodes of the season. But now we get the story behind it. The doll was enchanted, and when Ambrosius gave it to Grace, that sort of cast a centuries-long love spell on her. And the reason Bro is mentioning it now... If they're able to fix the doll and that old-timey spell still works, that means he can give it to Kevin, which means that he'll fall in love with Bro, overriding the previous anti-Bro spell. (laughs) So many rules. And Kevin will be his aspirant for the Libra Solstice. So with all that duly explained, Jay wanders into Van's room where she's painting. Of course. She's painting the lightning that's happening outside (laughs) her boarded-up window. (laughs) She's inspired. And Jay sees the doll lying there on the couch. Van purloined the doll from Diana's place in a previous episode. When Jay puts the broken piece back into place, the love spell becomes re-energized, and Jay immediately has heart eyes for Van. 
she explains that she's a lesbian. He's like, oh, man, that's cool. <laughs> I love lesbians. They're the best. Yeah, it was really <laughs> weirdly scripted stuff that <laughs> fell out of his mouth. But he's being a dude bro. So it worked for him. So after Jay essentially gets rejected, he throws the doll to Derek, who then looks at Kevin. Because he takes the creepy thing downstairs with him back to the impromptu bachelor party that is unfolded with basically the entire cast of the show who can fit into the set at the moment. So Derek has now been whammied by the doll. And when he looks at Kevin, he finds him utterly irresistible. And he makes out with him in the kitchen, of course, which Toby sees. So that turns into a whole thing. It's not an episode if Toby doesn't get to have a jealous moment. Van is minding her own business in her room when Grafe goes poof and she suddenly appears. <laughs> Hello. Making sure that Van understands if she agrees to be Grace's aspirant for the Libra Solstice, Libra Solstice, then they can bring Michelle back. Not from the dead, but if they are able to go back in time, they can set right the events that took place. Okay, first of all, I was really impressed that she was able to poof in lounging on the chaise lounge like hello i'm just going to be here lying it's not like i i I was standing and i transported in you know i managed to know where this furniture was and arrive laying on it but as you pointed out this was another great tracy scoggins moment with the whole you know she just walked you know took a long walk off a short pier again delivered really you know just as sincerely as one can deliver that kind of lie (laughs) tracy scoggins is brilliant That is what I think. And this episode just proves it all the more that she can deliver whatever she needs to say, especially with that like little lilt of a British accent that she's got. It just sells the whole thing. Kai and Marco, who are trapped with everyone else at the Dante because of the storm, both end up grabbing the doll at the same time and end up going at it hard on the kitchen island. I really liked how they had that. Okay, what's happening? Are we going to do this? Should we do this? We should do this. Let's not do it in the living room. Let's do it in the kitchen instead. Bro is lurking around the Dante and finds the doll, impresses it upon Toby, who is being consoled by Adam. And all of a sudden, Toby is like, oh my God, Adam, we're totally meant to be. And that leads to an extended montage with lots of lightning and lots of softcore humping for everybody involved. We didn't need to go back to the lair because (laughs) you've got it all going on at the Dante. Everyone's having a splendid time in the sort of wacky sexed up gay version of a midsummer night's dream (laughs) everyone is hooking up with people they're not supposed to toby though comes to his senses before going too far with adam he snatches the doll away from bro and he breaks it and the spell is lifted but bro is well and truly peeved so he uses his power to enslave toby and uses that as leverage kevin will be his aspirant for the ceremony or toby will be his magically enslaved servant forever And we know how well that went for Corey. It's not a fate anyone wants to have. Yeah, so Kevin agrees to bro's terms. Incidentally, now that the Midsummer Madness is over, because of the editorial choices they had to make concerning the story, that's the last we see of Derek and Jay. We don't know how they feel about being sex whammied, whether they continued the bachelor party bro weekend. We don't even see them leaving the island. It's just... Out of sight, out of mind. <laughs> because we got some business to get down to. It's the Libra Solstice, Libra Solstice. Before we get into the magical madcap wackiness of the finale, <laughs> something else I learned during the commentary on this particular episode is that the Libra Solstice ceremony was to take place on the set that they built outdoors, the magical mystical spring where the saint grows, and we've seen in previous episodes. 
But apparently, when they originally constructed that set, they didn't know about the poisonous centipedes in the area. Mm. Now, because they filmed in Hawaii, there are, of course, all sorts of tropical bugs and nasties. Of course, it's gorgeous and it's a beautiful paradise, but, you know, no place is perfect. And let's be realistic. (laughs) You can encounter dangers in the wilds when you're dealing with nature in the middle of the Pacific. So none of the actors were none too keen to be doing their scenes with creepy crawlies, potentially dangerous ones in the area. So they moved the set because of time and budget constraints. They had to shoot the Libra Solstice ceremony during the daytime. Now, director Sam Irvin freely admits he would have preferred for this scene to be shot at night. But from a story perspective, they justified it as that Tresum is the power of the sun and the moon. So it could just have easily have happened during the daytime. Sure, that works. Now, granted, because of all the magical shenanigans that are about to happen, it's sort of like watching fireworks go off in the daytime. It's not terribly impressive, but you work with what you got. So let me try and explain (laughs) what the Libra Solstice ceremony is all about. Grace is there with her aspirant van, and through the power of digital effects, she's using her magical sparkle fingers to absorb the power. They're interrupted by Ambrosius and Kevin, because Bro wants to stand on the altar stone and absorb the Libra power. So Grace and Bro have a magical shooting match. Pew, pew, pew. (laughs) Toby rushes in to make sure Kevin is okay. Grace zaps Bro and he disappears. So it looks like she's got the upper hand. That is before Diana steps in and she zaps Grace and she disappears. And Ben is like, oh my gosh, I never expected this. You were manipulating us all along. And Diana's a little like, yeah, that was the whole point. So Diana is all set to receive all of this power, but Ben gives her the traditional feel-good speech. You know, this isn't really you. It doesn't have to be this way. And Diana suddenly has a change of heart and places Van on the altar stone. And she receives the full power of the Libra Solstice. And that, of course, means that she has the power to stop time. And she uses that power to go back to before Michelle takes her long walk into the ocean. There's so much to unpack here. First of all, I couldn't help but look at this scene and think of it as like the mystical, witchy, dynasty pool fighting scenes. And I don't know why my mind went there, but it's like all these people are having this big fight with their magical sparkly fingers and not actually touching each other. But if they were touching each other, you just know they'd be rolling around on the ground like a good old dynasty fight. You know, kind of like we've seen in some of the earlier episodes when people need to throw down. But all of this, like, I was amused that as important as the Libra Solstice is, that not everybody showed up at the same time to do this thing. And that, you know, Grace got the head start and then Diana showed up at the right time after Bro was out of the picture to get rid of Grace. And just, it was just cuckoo bananas. And frankly, if I had been Van, I might have gone further back in time and made it so bro never got out of the cellar. Because then the Michelle thing wouldn't have happened, but everybody else could have been happy from a much longer time back. It was very short-sighted, in my opinion. (laughs) 
but it also would have meant that the show would have had to end here, perhaps, because there'd, there'd have been no bro to, like, kick everything off. But, you know, that's just me. That's my editorializing in this episode. So the ceremony's over and our heroes have triumphed. And later in front of the Dante, Ban says goodbye to Michelle. Now that she's not dead, she's decided to go home, meaning the mainland, and she needs some time to figure things out. And as she's driving away, Bro saunters up the driveway, and he has come to collect his man. When Kevin agreed to be his aspirant, that meant they were bound together. And essentially, it is now Kevin's full-time job to be with Ambrosius. I don't understand when people get zapped away, why the zapper doesn't make sure that they permanently remove them from the situation. What are you talking about? Kill them. Don't just, like, zap them and let them go away for a minute. Solve the problem. I mean, where do you go when you get zapped? Are you, like, in the phantom zone for a minute? Or, you know, do you just get, like, knocked to the other side of the island? I think as we've discussed before, (laughs) overthinking Dante's ghost just leaves the heartache. I suppose that's true. So Ambrosius uses his magical hold over Kevin and takes him away, leaving poor Van and Toby just standing there because there's nothing they can do. Even with all that Libro Solstice power. So that's a cliffhanger to end on. There's lots of stuff to explore coming up in Season 3. If you'd like to check out Dante's Cove for the first time, or maybe revisit it, the episodes could all be found streaming on Amazon Prime Video. This episode's transcript has been brought to you by our community on Patreon. If you'd like to read our conversation for yourself, simply head on over to the show notes page for this episode at BigGayFictionPodcast.com. And if you've watched Dante's Cove in the past, or are maybe checking it out now because we're talking about it, we'd love to know what you think. Let us know by leaving a comment on that very same show notes page. And one last quick reminder, if you haven't signed up for our weekly newsletter yet, you are missing out on more gay fiction recommendations from us. Will and I have put together Happily Ever After, a free ebook full of reviews and suggested romance reads. Whether you're in the mood for contemporary, or maybe historical, or holiday romance, we have got you covered. To learn more and to get your free ebook, as well as the weekly Rainbow Romance Reader Report, go to biggayfictionpodcast.com slash report and subscribe today. All right, I think that'll do it for now. Coming up next in episode 393, we've got more Dante's Cove coming your way as we recap the season three opener. You are not going to want to miss out on the aftermath of that big Libra solstice. Libra solstice! On behalf of Jeff and myself, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you'll join us again soon for more discussions about the kinds of stories we all love, the big gay fiction kind. Until then, keep turning those pages and keep reading. Big Gay Fiction Podcast is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more shows you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Production assistance by Tyson Greenan. Original theme music by Daryl Banner. 